Good morning. If you are here next Sunday, you're going to get a chance to meet my lady friend from Austin. She'll be here uh, with me, and uh, it's kind of a miraculous thing. We were um, sweethearts in high school 55 some odd years ago. Uh, after high school, we dated for a while, and uh, she ended up going to SMU. I ended up going to Arkansas, and so we parted. And now, uh, some 55 years now, I'm a find myself a widower, and she's a widow. Has been for the last seven years. I have been for the last two and a half years. So God has um, brought us back together. We're enjoying each other's uh, company. She's very shy. So when I ask her to stand up and let you see her, she probably won't. So if you want to get a good look at her, walk by the front. <laughs> probably going to get me for that because she's watching this service right now. Uh, I want to begin by correcting a statement I made last week. Uh, I made the statement that it's uh, tragic that, that those young people not only killed, but they were killed with an assault weapon. Well, that's really not an accurate statement, and I stand corrected on that. Um, I think I said they were killed by an assault weapon. I, I don't know if that's the correct statement. Um, Actually, there's two, at least two kinds of AK-47s that are built. One is a military-style AK-47 that has the ability to be a semi-automatic or disperse uh, rounds very quickly. I mean, it can disperse 10 or 12 rounds very, very quickly. That AK-47 is outlawed. You cannot purchase that legally. However, there is another AK-47 that is a semi-automatic that can be purchased legally a number of my friends own those, and I assure you they did not buy them to kill people with. They bought them to hunt with, and they bought them for self-defense. And uh, I, I think it's uh, kind of tragic today in our society. If, if you're my age or close to my age, let me just say this to you. This is not the society you and I grew up in. When we were children, we would never, ever think of somebody walking into a thank you. Yeah, I thought I had one somewhere. We would never think of somebody walking into a, a school or a church or mall and, and shooting people. But this is the society we live in. And the Bible says we're to be wise as servants and harmless as doves. Ecclesiastes 7.17 7, says, don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? And unfortunately, we live in an age where it's wise to defend ourselves. It's, it's, it's a, now when I say this, don't get up and leave. But statistically, you're twice as likely to be killed sitting in church as you are sitting in your living room. Now, don't leave. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure there's some security methods back there that would prevent that. You know, some people would say, well, we'd just like to get rid of guns altogether. And um, I, I, don't, I don't think that's the answer, honestly. I Personally, I own, I, I have a, Concealed handgun license. I have six handguns. I normally carry one. I don't have one now. So, uh, I was sitting in the uh, cafe recently with some of my preacher friends. They said, uh, "Barry, are you packing?" I said, "I'm always packing." And they said, "Well, why don't you just why don't you just trust the Lord and leave your gun at home?" I said, "Do you have fire insurance on your house?" 
He said, of course. They said, why don't you just trust the Lord and drop it? Again, this is society. The Bible says in, it's going to get worse. I mean, the Bible says in the last days there'll be a, a, a lawless society. So we, we live in that lawless society. I wish I could be uh, more positive and say it's going to get better. But if you read the scriptures, technically it's going to get worse before Jesus comes. But you know, all those precious children and those teachers that were killed two weeks ago, one day the Lord's going to bring them back. And they're going to reign on this earth for a thousand years. And it's not, and it's not going to be a scary reign because Jesus is going to be the ruler of those thousand years. But these bad guys that are killing these people aren't coming back. They're going to be doomed to a devil's hell, and it's not going to be for a period of time. It's going to be for all eternity. So, uh, anyway, I just want to make sure I got that, uh, that corrected. I want you to open your Bible this morning to the 12th chapter of the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, and we're going to try to get through today. I, just, some of these need very little uh, explanation, and some need little bit more, but by way of review, we, we saw last week that really the word gifts is probably not the best word. In fact, it's not in the original language. When you think of a gift, you think of giving somebody something and then they possess it, but that's not the case with spiritual gifts. Uh, the, the Bible says that they're manifestations. It's, uh, it's something that to, to make apparent. In other words, when the Holy Spirit's working in your life, there's some things that are going to be apparent. They were certainly apparent in the life of Jesus. We saw where Jesus operated in these gifts. Why did he operate in these gifts? Because we saw from the book of Philippians that when, when Jesus uh, came, he divested himself of all the supernatural power he had as God and just became a man. So as a man, we saw where he was anointed by the Holy Spirit when he was baptized. Therefore, we, we'll see these operating in, in his life. And, and I believe they ought to be operating in the life of Christians. Now, now, if our goal is just to sit on the premises, then we don't need them. But if our goal is to storm the gates and set the captive free and advance the kingdom of God, we need these. So the question is, why study them? That's not, the good, that's not a good question. The question is, why not study them? Why not know them? We saw last week where Paul said, I would not have you ignorant concerning, oh, well, he actually, New American Standard says, I would not have you to be unaware. King James is a little more forceful. It says, I would not have you to be ignorant concerning these spiritual gifts. And I, and I said to you last week, and I say it in love, what Paul said, don't be ignorant of, is what the church today, in my opinion, is most ignorant of. And the reason for that is, is like I said last week, Satan has so confused and abused the gifts of the Holy Spirit, consequently people refuse them. I talk to people all the time that will say, well, I just don't want to hear about the gifts of the Spirit. Well, why? I mean, th th those are, the Bible says it's uh, for the common good. King James uses the term to build up. Well, why wouldn't you want to build up the church? Satan doesn't want you to build up the church. So again, his, his goal is to keep us from the gifts. So, having said that, we're going, to, we're going to look at them. And some of them, again, won't take very much explanation. Some will take more. But if you're looking down at the uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
he starts with wisdom, and he says a, a word of wisdom. Anybody know anybody named Sophia? Anybody know a person named Sophia? That's the Greek word for wisdom. Sophia. If you go to Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, it would say something like this. Insight into the true nature of things or the ability to give wise counsel or to discern God's will in a situation. Now, why in the world would you not want that? I mean, as a, as a pastor doing marriage counseling, that's exactly what I sought. I, I wanted wise counsel. I, want, I wanted to know the, God's will in that situation. And... Uh, what about uh, solving church problems? Uh, churches don't have problems, do they? I heard about a guy one time that visited a Baptist church on Wednesday night, and it was a business meeting, and he didn't know it was a business meeting. After about five minutes, he turned to the guy sitting next to him. He said, y'all always fight like this? He said, shut up and reload. That's so true in some churches. I mean, it just seemed like they go from one fight to the next, and it's pitiful, it's sad. It's a horrible thing for the community. But what does the Bible say that begins our wisdom? Fear of God. The Bible says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. When I was at Highland, we had elders at Highland, and one of them was particularly gifted in the area of wisdom. And quite often, his name was J.B. Owen. Some of you may know him. He's going to be with the Lord now. But boy, so many times I'd send people to him. I said, you need to go talk to J.B. I'm telling you, he's gifted in this area of wisdom. Uh, James says we can ask for it. Any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives all liberally. He won't chide you for it, but he'll give it to you. So we need to ask God. God, give us, give us wisdom. Again, Jesus was wiser than any of the people that tried to trap him. You know, they'd come to say, should we, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Well, whose who's picture's on that coin? Caesar's, okay, we'll render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God. So Jesus operated in this wisdom, and he was always uh, dependent upon the Holy Spirit as we should be. So wisdom, it's, it's a great gift, it's a great manifestation. Then, there's the word, then the next one is a word of knowledge. And this comes from the Greek word gnosko, and again, Vine's Expository Dictionary New Testament where it says to understand completely that which by any other means, we wouldn't understand or we wouldn't know. It's God revealing something to you that you wouldn't know otherwise. And uh, again, we see examples of that uh, in the life of Jesus. How did Jesus know the woman at the well had been married six times before? He probably wasn't acquainted with her or family, but the word of wisdom. Uh, the Bible says in uh, John chapter 2, verse 24, that he knew what was in their hearts. Matthew chapter 9, verse 4 says he knew the th what they were thinking. Mark chapter 2, verse 8 says he was aware uh, in his spirit. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 18, he was aware of their malice. So a word of knowledge is something that God gives you that you wouldn't know any other way. Okay? Now let me show you how this has operated in my life. Several years ago, and I can take you to the stop sign where this happened in Oklahoma. I came up to a stop. I was going back to work after lunch, and I came up to a stop sign, and I don't hear God's voice. Well, maybe you do, and if you do, good. I don't. But I hear God speak in my heart. 
And God said, there's a man in the church I want you to confront because he's having an affair. And I want you to confront him, and I want you to confront him today. I said, Lord, uh, you don't go around doing that. That's not something that's real popular for you to go around accusing people of doing things like that. So, uh, all the same to you, Lord. I need a little bit more information than that. And, and the Lord, again, no voice. I felt like the Lord said, go by this woman's house right now, and you will see his car in front of her house. And her husband's at work, and he should not be there. I said, okay, I'm going to end this once and for all. I'm going to go by her house. You know what? His car was there. His car was there. So I, I called him on the phone, and I said, I need you to come to my office as quick as possible. Let me add one more thing. He was a staff member. He was a staff member. I said, I'm going to tell you what the Lord told me, and if I'm wrong, I will get on my hands and knees, and I will crawl over to your chair, and I'll ask your forgiveness. But if I'm right, you're going to know this is a God thing. He said, okay. I said, you're having an affair. I'm going to tell you the woman's name you're having the affair with, and I'm going to tell you how long the affair's been going on. I told him her name. I told him how long it had been going on. He looked at me and said, how did you know? I said, I know because the Lord told me. You know what? It ended up saving a ministry and saving two marriages. But it's a wonderful gift. Abuse, yes. Abuse, yes. Good gift, yes. All right. Let's look at uh, faith. Um, we don't have to look up a definition in Vine's Dictionary for that, do we? Did the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 tell us what faith is? It says, faith is the substance of things that we hope for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Now, faith can operate two ways. It can operate in us. First of all, the Bible says God has given to everyone a measure of faith. So we all have faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who, who diligently seek him. But first of all, it's faith to believe the promises of God. It takes faith to believe the promises of God. And secondly, faith to believe in his faithfulness to us. You know, I, tell, I hear people say all the time, well, you Baptists believe you can lose your salvation, but if you're unfaithful, God will drop you. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says when we're faithless, he remains faithful. We're going to be rewarded in heaven by how we live, but we're not going to heaven by how we live. We're going to heaven by our faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are many great biblical examples of faith. The one that stands out in my mind is uh, Daniel chapter 3. Remember when Nebuchadnezzar was going to throw the three Hebrew children into the uh, furnace? And uh, if they didn't bow down to his gods, and what did, what did they say? They said, our God will deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will still not bow down to your false gods. That's faith. I know people that say, well, I quit going to church because God let my mother die or my friend die or something like this. In other words, I'll be faithful to God as long as God does what he's... Well, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, the, their 12th chapter, that many died in faith having not received the promise. 
But our faith is that God is faithful and God will keep his promises even when it doesn't look like there's an answer. Real quickly, I mean, when my daughter died, but killed actually by a drunk driver, my wife and I had decided that she wasn't going to go back to school and teach until our children were school age. So my daughter was entering the first grade. It was the first day of the first grade. So my wife got a job teaching in the same school that my daughter was attending in the first grade. And so we were going to pay off a, a, what they used to call a balloon loan. Remember those? Ooh, don't, don't ever get one. Uh, on our house. And so uh, we were going to use her money to pay off that uh, quote, balloon loan. She never got a single paycheck. The wreck happened the first day of her teaching and the first day of my daughter's first grade. Well, a couple of weeks later, I found myself sitting in my office with no car. The car that my wife was driving that day was the second car that we only carried liability on, so we didn't have any money, insurance from that. And uh, my wife was in the hospital for probably a month. She came out of the hospital, she said, I need the car to go see Mark. See, Mark was in the hospital. My son was in the hospital for about six weeks. So here I am. And then add to that the little small thing that I had a $56,000 bill at the hospital. $56,000. This was 40 years ago. That was a lot of money then. It's a lot of money today. I remember getting down on my knees in my office and say, God, you said you'd never put more, more on me than what I'm able to bear. I just want you to know you're really close. I mean, you're really hedging here. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you that you're going to meet my every need according to your riches of glory in Christ Jesus. I'm going to shorten the story to tell you that a few weeks later, I had a brand new Bonneville sitting in my driveway completely paid for. I owed the bank absolutely nothing. I owed the hospital absolutely nothing. And I had $76,000 in my bank account. God gives us faith to believe that he will keep his promises. Okay. Sorry for the personal things, but I think you'd rather me tell them on me than you, right? Okay. All right, healing. Healings. Notice it's plural. It's, it's healings. And it's interesting what Vine's Expository Dictionary says about healings. Listen, it says to care for the sick, to treat, to cure, to heal, to make whole. Sozo is that word, uh, heal. Uh, Luke was a physician. I think most of you know that. Was the only doctor that Jesus had as his disciples. He used the word 15 times in his gospel. Uh, Jesus healed everybody that came to him. We know that. The only place he didn't heal is Capernaum, his own hometown. And the Bible says he didn't do it there because his lack of faith, the people's lack of faith. Um, I don't know why everybody's not healed today. I don't know. It's not my department. My department's not healing. My department's praying for the sick. But I'm going to pray for the sick. And I may be criticized, but I'm going to pray for the sick because I believe that God is a healing God. I believe he wants to heal people. In fact, James chapter 5 tells us a method that he uses to heal people, doesn't he? 
He says, is there any sick among you? Let them call for the elders of the church. Let them anoint them with oil, which is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. And the prayer of faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven. Now notice the healing came even before the forgiveness. In our church at Highland, we, we were elder-led. Every service, we had our elders stand at the back of the church, not the front, but at the back of the church. And there was a time that we said, if you're sick and need the elders to pray for you, they would go back there. So uh, here's what I tell people. Make God your first choice, not your last chance. Okay? And I've had people come to me and say, well, everything else is not working. This, you know, let's, let's finally pray. No, make God your first choice, not your last chance. And I want to say this. I thank God for, excuse me, I thank God for the medical community. I thank God for doctors. I know you have one sitting right back there. I thank God for doctors. I thank God for nurses. My daughter is a nurse. As far as I'm concerned, they're God's healing hands. They're God's hands of compassion. And I thank you. In fact, I'm at the age right now for every number in my black book is a doctor. Every number in my black book is a doctor. And they're all Christians. Almost every doctor I have, before I leave the office, they pray for me. I'm often asked the question, uh, are, are, is, is there such a thing as a real faith healer today? Well, if they are, they're awfully hard to find. Because it seems like every time I need one, there's not one around. It's not for me to say if they're, quote, faith healers or not. But I just, I don't know. I don't know. I know people that seem to be particularly gifted in that. Uh, I knew a particular doctor, one, I mean, a pastor who worked in Israel as a pastor for 40 years. That was, uh, God used him in a miraculous way to bring about uh, healing. Okay. Uh, and, and we believe in healing, don't we? I mean, Baptists, I mean, if we don't believe in healing, why do we have Wednesday night prayer meeting and the number one thing we pray for is people's healing? So don't tell me that Baptists don't believe in healing. We believe in healing. It's a sovereign thing of God, and we don't all understand it, but, uh, but we believe that God is a healing God because the Scripture says that He is. All right, let's move on to prophecy. Um, again, Vine's Expositor Dictionary says, the speaking forth of the mind and counsel of God. The speaking forth of the mind and counsel of God. Now, prophecy can be foretelling or forthtelling. What do I mean by that? Well, if you foretell, you're talking about something that might happen in the future. But prophecy can be something in the past. It can be something in the present. It can be something in the future. But it's also forthtelling. When I went to Highland, to be honest with you, when I first came to Highland, Highland was a whole lot more charismatic than what I was comfortable with. And I had a precious lady who said to me one day, uh, as I was uh, starting the service, she said, when are we going to have a prophecy from the pulpit? I said, ma'am, I think we have one every Sunday. We, we do. I said, the word prophecy means to foretell, not just to foretell. So in that sense, yes, uh, 
But I, and I see two types of prophecy in the Bible. I see the office of prophet. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 29, it says, let the prophets speak. And let the other prophets pass judgment. I mean, even prophets don't have a carte blanche where they can just say whatever they want to. The Bible says if one prophet was speaking, then the other prophets were passing judgment upon him, if, if that be true or not. And then there's the uh, gift of prophecy mentioned here. If you'll turn to the 14th chapter, let me read it. It says, pursue love, desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Okay, then it goes on to say, for the one who speaks in tongues speaks to, God, uh, speaks to men, but the one who uh, no one understands him, but in the spirit he speaks mysteries. But the one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, or consolation. So, I remember back during the heyday of the charismatic movement, people would walk up to you and put some kind of condemnation on you. Well, God told me to tell you this, and that it, it, it was condemnation. No, that's not prophecy. The Bible says if you're going to prophesy, it's for edification to edify, edification, exhortation to exhort, or to comfort. If it's not under those three categories, then I wouldn't receive it. But I'd have people come up to me and say, well, God told me to tell you da-da-da-da-da, and it was, con it was sort of a condemnation. I'd say, no, I think he gave that to you for you, not for me for me, okay? So are there prophets today that are real? I don't know. I, I know some men that can sure predict, I mean, tell you some things that uh, hadn't happened yet. I remember when we, when we started Antioch Church. I don't know if you know that or not, but Highland started Antioch Church. And uh, the night before we announced anything, nobody knew except the elders and the, the few staff members that were going to go plant the church. Uh, we were invited to this home, and there was a, quote, prophet that was going to be there that night. And uh, that night he said, I see two churches. I see one that's more of a local-based church that supports missions, but I see one that's more of an international church all over the world kind of a church. That's what Antioch is. Antioch said, we had, you know, Antioch had, I mean, Highland had missionaries, don't misunderstand me, but Antioch was more of a world-based church. He said that the night before it was ever announced from the pulpit. Now, how did he, he know that? He wasn't even, doesn't even live around here somewhere. So, are there prophets today? If they are, they don't really in large herds. But uh, it's not for me to say whether that they are or not. Uh, okay, let's look at the next one because it kind of gets a little bit more light on this. The distinguishing of spirits. The distinguishing of spirits. And many people will say, well, I have the gift of discerning of spirits. Well, that's not what this says. It's the distinguishing of spirits. And what does that mean? It means the ability to distinguish whether a spirit is a good spirit or an evil spirit. Whether the prophet or the preacher that's praying is a, is a good one or, or, or an evil one. And why, why, why would you need that? Well, if you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, listen to what it says in verse 13. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
Therefore, it is not surprising that his servants, Satan's servants, also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their own deeds. So according to that scripture, Satan has preachers that have disguised themselves as uh, real preachers that are not. Now, that's not to say that everybody that says something that's wrong is a false teacher or false prophet, but I was listening to one of these television preachers recently, and this is what he said. He said, Jesus had two homes. He had a large home in Capernaum where he could entertain a lot of people. Then he had a beach house. Well, what, does that, what does the Bible say? Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus said he didn't have a home. But that preacher said that he had two homes. Well, I don't think you have to have the gift of discernment to know that's not true, right? But there's some people that are kind of shallow in their faith or they're new Christians. They, they don't know the difference. And when someone makes a statement like that, the, the Holy Spirit is there to say, that's not true, okay? That's not true. Now, this is an important gift because Satan does have not only assassins, but he's got false preachers and teachers. And Now, let me show you one of the ways this, this has worked in my life. When I was in Oklahoma many years ago, I was asked to speak one Sunday night in a young uh, man's church. He was early 20s, I guess. And he just invited me to come and speak, so obviously I took the invitation. And I remember it took a long time to find a church. It was a country church. And uh, when I finally found it, it was right at church time. He came out in the parking lot and said, man, I'm glad you found us. He said, I was about to give up on you. I said, I was about to give up on you too. But uh, that was back before you could ask your you know, phone to tell you how to get someplace. Uh, so I did what any preacher would do. I went in and... Uh, he said, well, let's go sit on the platform. It's time for church to start. It's okay. So we went up there, and I sat right about here, and he sat right about here. And I, and I did what all preachers do. The first thing you do is just kind of scan the auditorium just to see who's there and so forth. Well, I made eye contact with the guy sitting right back over there. When I made eye contact with him, I turned to the preacher, and I said, don't look right now, but I want you to look back there. There's a guy sitting back there about five rows back. He's on the inside aisle. He's well-dressed, has on a suit. Tell me if you've, ever seen him, if you've ever seen him before. So he, you know, discreetly looks back there. and He kind of turns and whispers to me and says, excuse me, I'm going to have to do something here. I'm getting pretty dry. So he turns. And he says, I've never seen that man before. I said, well, that man is demonic. And he is going to start a ruckus in this service tonight before it's over. And when he starts that ruckus, do you want me to handle it or do you want to handle it? He Kind of a broken voice. He said, I don't want you to handle it. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll handle it. Now, listen to me. Just before I got up to preach, two policemen came in and took him out of the service. When the service is over, I went back there to the people that were sitting behind him. 
And I said, what happened here tonight? Why was that guy taken out of the church? And the two ladies said he was saying things that scared us under his breath, but we could hear him. He said he was saying things about you, and he, he was saying things about the church, and so it frightened us. So we went back and told the ushers, and the ushers came and took him out. Now, say, well, Barry, how often does that happen to you? Not very often. But it is a spirit of discernment that you know that uh, only that God just reveals that to you. Okay? So why would you be afraid of that? Great. All right, now we come to tongues. I just missed the service. No, not really. <laughs> I'll wait and let your pastor, your new pastor, talk about this one, okay? This, of course, is the most controversial. This, of course, is the most abused of, I think, all of the gifts. Um, now, let me just say this. Um, when I study this, and believe me, I've studied it a lot over the years, I, I see two kinds of tongues here. And, and let's go to Acts, uh, over to Acts chapter 2 real quickly if we could, okay? Acts chapter 2. And now this is, of course, when the Holy Spirit came. By the way, uh, I keep hearing the term baptized in the Spirit, you know, speaking in tongues. But here it doesn't say that. It says they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So, but anyway, let's take up the reading in verse 4, Acts chapter 2. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. Now, the word tongue there is the Greek word glossola, which means languages. And in the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul says there are perhaps many kinds of glossola, or there are many kinds of languages in the world, but none of them are without significance. So they began to speak in these languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. Remember what does the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit is the one that decides when these gifts are to be operating. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when, they, when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each man, each one of them, was hearing them speak in his own didactalos. That's the Greek word that means where we get our word dialect. So they were speaking in languages, and these people understood them in their own dialect. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all, are not all these men speaking Galileans? And how is it that each one hear them in his own didactalos, his own dialect, uh, which we were born? And then down in verse 11, it says, it talks about the Christians and uh, Arabs, it says, and, and we hear them in our own tongue, our own dialect, speaking the mighty works of God. Now, that was obviously, on the day of Pentecost, all these people had come together to worship. There were many different languages there. But the Holy Spirit orchestrated that in such a way that everybody got to hear and understand because their language was being spoken. You see that? Okay. Now, let me illustrate that. Uh, when we were Highland, we planted uh, some churches in Russia, primarily Siberia, down called Ulan Uday and Irakuts. And I would go over there from time to time uh, to check and see how the churches were doing. Well, the young people that we sent over there to plant the churches were probably right out of college. They were in their maybe early 20s. And so consequently, the, the majority of the people in the churches they reached were kind of people their own age. And so they were mostly young adults. There were some older people, but mostly the congregations were young adults. 
there was one individual, in fact, one of those ladies who was my interpreter when I preached there in Russia came over here and married Mike Toby's son. Mike Toby, of course, was the longtime pastor of First Baptist Church of Woodway. And when I was preaching, I only uh, stumped her one time. I said, sometime in America, we just go through the motions of worship and are, are living the Christian life. And she stopped and looked at me. She said, go through motions? Well, how do you explain that to a Russian? I said, well, we just do things without thinking about it. We just do it, okay? But one of those men, early 20s, spoke absolutely fluent English. I thought he was an American that had moved to Russia. So I asked him one day, I said, how long have you lived in Russia? He said, all my life. I said, well, did you go to school in America? He said, I've never been to America. I said, how do you speak fluent American with no accent? I said, the rest of these young people speak English, but they speak with an accent. Listen to what he said. God gave it to me. Well, how are you going to dispute that? I mean, it was obvious that he could. So I asked some of his friends. I said, how long have you known this guy? Oh, I've known him for a long time. How long has he been speaking English? All at once, he just starts speaking it. Now, that's what we see in Acts chapter 2. Okay? The ability to be given a language that you've never known, but yet you're able to... Speak it, okay? But let's go on. Let's go back to, uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 14 for a minute. And let's look at uh, verse 12, okay? So also, since you are so jealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound in the edification of the church. Therefore, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he might interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with my spirit and I will pray, pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit and I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if I bless in the spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at my giving of thanks? Since he does not know what I'm saying. Then verse 17. For, if we are, if, uh, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. He's not built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in church, I had rather speak five words with my mind so that I might instruct others than 10,000 in a tongue. Now, go back up there where he says, I will pray in my spirit, and I'll pray. Well, let's make sure we get it right. Um, he says, what is the, uh, otherwise, he said, what is the outcome then? I will pray with my spirit and I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit. I will sing with my mind also. I don't think that's talking about a foreign language. I think he's talking about something that the Holy Spirit gives him to pray in that, uh, you know, the charismatics will call it a, a prayer language. Okay? I don't understand that because I've never done it. But he says, you're giving thanks well enough. Now, would he say that if it was just a bunch of gibberish that had no meaning whatsoever? No, he wouldn't say that. He would say, that's just a bunch of gibberish that has no meaning whatsoever. No, he doesn't say that. He says it's legitimate. And he said, I, I will do both. But now here's where 
to me, the snag kind of comes in. They will take, quote, the filling of the Spirit that happened in Acts chapter 2 and the prayer language, if you want to call it that, over 1 Corinthians 14 and wed the two. And that's not being intellectually honest with Scripture. What happened in Acts chapter 2 was clearly a known language that uh, they understood, but the people speaking it didn't know it. It was given to them. But in chapter 14, we come up with something that looks entirely different. In fact, when I get to heaven, I'm going to sit down and have a long talk with Paul. I'm going to say, Paul, you could have made this a lot easier for us to explain, but you're all over the map. I mean, read 1 Corinthians chapter 14. He starts out by saying, uh, He that speaks in tongues speaks to God, for no man understands him. Howbeit in his spirit he speaks mysteries. Then he comes down and says, By, by the way, there is no language. There's not some, you know, somebody understands it somewhere. And then he'll come along and say, uh, Oh, by the way, I pray in a tongue. But then he'll say, but Therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to those who believe not. Then the very next verse he'll say, But if you all speak in tongues in church, and the lost people come in, they're going to think you're crazy. Then he'll come down and say, but if you do speak in tongues, you should be limited to two or three. And then he'll end the chapter by saying, forbid not to speak in tongues. Paul, I mean, you're just all over the map. So what's the outcome? Seek the giver, not the gift. Seek the giver, not the gift. Remember, the Holy Spirit distributes these as he desires. So our job is to be recipients. Our job is to be conduit, not containers. When God uses that gift or gives you that gift, again, I would have to say in my study of 1 Corinthians 14 that what happened in Acts chapter 2 and what he's talking about there in those verses is, is different. I just don't see how you can make them one and the same, even though many people try to do that. So, um, and remember, the, the gift of the Spirit are what? They're for the common good of the church. They're not primarily just to build us up, but for the, for the uh, common good. Well, this has been kind of lengthy, and I'm sorry for that. Uh, there's a few more gifts mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12, but they're pretty much self-explanatory. I don't think we really need to spend a whole lot of t a time there, but I do feel like that we need to spend some time here, and I hope uh, maybe this has shed some light for you. I hope you understand maybe better. Never be afraid of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is uh, going to come to enlighten us, to help us, to build us up. He's not the author of confusion. And when you have a confusion in church, it's not because the Holy Spirit caused it. It's because it's been either abused or refused or so forth. All right. I hope you learned something. I'm spent, personally. This is not easy to teach. It is not easy to teach. But I believe God wants the church to know it. Okay? Let's stand together.